Hello, um, my name is Dr. Stephen McVeigh and I'm a consultant paediatric intensivist in Belfast and I'm here today to talk about the child with a reduced level of consciousness. So my learning outcomes for this session, I hope by the end of this session you'll be able to recall the causes of a reduced level of consciousness in children and to understand the pathophysiology of a very important cause, that of raised intracranial pressure. Following this, I hope you will be able to discuss an approach to the child with a critically raised intracranial pressure. So we'll begin with a case. This case is of a five-month-old term baby who is awaiting outpatient review for macrocephaly. Their head circumference has moved from the 50th to the 99th centile from birth till now. He has been admitted under the general paediatric take with what was appeared to be a vomiting illness. Baseline bloods were sent and he was started onto some IV fluids. And as the night team, you have been called to see him as he's become increasingly drowsy throughout the shift. When you arrive, you do an ABC assessment and find that he has signs of upper airway obstruction, which are relieved of the jaw thrust. He has a non-rebreather mask on and is oxygenating well with SATs in the high 90s. He has got good air entry. His heart rate is lower than you would expect for a child of his age in the mid 70s, and his blood pressure is higher than you would expect at 130 over 90, although he is warm and well perfused with normal heart sounds. You assess his level of consciousness and find that he only responds to pain. In particular, he opens his eyes to pain briefly. He moans to pain and he gives some abnormal extensor movements to pain. His pupils are size 3 bilaterally and are reactive, but his anterior fontanelle feels very full, even bulging, and his sutures are spread. He has no temperature and no rash. So what could the cause of this child's reduced level of consciousness be? I want to draw your attention to this document, The Management of Children and Young People, with an acute decrease in consciousness level from the RCPCH, which was revised most recently last year. Within this document, there is a poster with a nice flowchart for assessing children with reduced level of consciousness, which takes a stepwise approach. Firstly, you confirm the level of consciousness using GCS or AVPU, and then you perform a decreased level of consciousness specific ABC assessment. You make sure that the child is well oxygenated, is not shocked, does not have a low blood sugar, and then you decide whether or not the child needs their airway protected because their GCS is either below 9 or they have a CO2 which requires controlling in the setting of a raised intracranial pressure. This pathway gives a range of preliminary core investigations to send which are listed on the slide and advises that you start observations and consider a differential diagnosis. The following um, is the differential diagnosis included within that pathway, including such diagnoses as hypertensive encephalopathy, metabolic disease, prolonged seizures, sepsis, intracranial infection, raised ICP, intoxication and shock. Each of those topics in the guideline gives you key features to look out for and initial management pathways. In our case, our child is inappropriately bradycardic and hypertensive with some features of abnormal posturing, 
in keeping with raised intracranial pressure. Following through with the, with the advice within those guidelines, um, you should give high flow oxygen, position the child in a head up position with the head in the midline, consider osmotherapy, correct any hypoglycemia and shock, and arrange review with your local anaesthetic or paediatric intensive care team for consideration of intubation and ventilation. So following on with our case, our child had IV access in situ, so a blood gas was taken, the blood glucose was seven. Because of the signs of raised intracranial pressure, doses of osmotherapy was given as 3% saline and PICU was contacted. So I hope we have now covered the potential causes of a reduced level of consciousness and I now want to move on to um, the pathophysiology of the cause in our case, which is raised intracranial pressure. In humans, the CNS is contained within um, a fixed space within the skull and there are a number of tissues contained within this space. Those tissues are the brain, the CSF and blood, which can be divided between the arterial and the venous system. And in health, those tissues within that space exert a pressure, your intracranial pressure. When you introduce pathologies, which are listed on the slide, such as cerebral edema, blood clot, abscess, hydrocephalus, Initially, the CNS has the capacity to compensate by reducing the volume of CSF or venous blood, and the pressure does not rise immediately. However, as these compensatory mechanisms are um, overwhelmed, the pressure begins to rise, with a high pressure generically being taken as being above 20 centimetres of water. Other physiological parameters have effects on the intracranial pressure also through their effects on cerebral blood flow. The first two that I would like to talk about are the blood gas tensions of CO2 and O2. CO2 demonstrates a direct relationship with cerebral blood flow. As CO2 gas tension within the blood increases, cerebral blood flow increases. This is in a linear fashion until maximal cerebral vasodilatation is reached, in which case it flattens off. At low CO2 gas tensions, cerebral blood flow reduces because of cerebral vasoconstriction um, until maximal vasoconstriction is reached. Oxygen demonstrates an inverse relationship with cerebral blood flow. As increasing hypoxia develops, Cerebral vasodilatation develops at low oxygen tensions, supplying increased blood to the brain in an, in an effort to supply adequate oxygen to the brain tissue. Therefore, management of these gas tensions will be important when we come on to managing intracranial pressure. Another physiological parameter I would like to touch upon is that of blood pressure and its effect on cerebral blood flow. In health, cerebral blood flow is maintained across a wide range of blood pressures at a constant rate through autoregulation. This is achieved through vasodilatation or vasoconstriction 
of cerebral blood vessels. And only when maximal vasodilatation is reached at low blood pressures does blood pressure, or cerebral blood flow start to fall. And only at maximal vasoconstriction at high blood pressures does cerebral blood flow start to rise. However, when the CNS is injured by pathology, this relationship can be disrupted and cerebral blood flow becomes um, directly proportional to the mean arterial pressure. And this can be conceptualized through the cerebral perfusion pressure, the pressure which is perfusing the brain, which is equal to the mean arterial pressure minus the intracranial pressure. Finally, whenever cerebral, whenever intracranial pressure rises, there is the possibility that an area of CNS or brain tissue will herniate through into another area of the CNS. This can be transtentorial, uncle herniation or cerebellar herniation. The features of these are given on the slide and include things such as autonomic um, instability with hypertensive bradycardia, respiratory irregularity, temperature instability, neurological deficits such as cranial nerve palsies, respiratory arrest and ultimately death. So now that we have reviewed the pathophysiology of raised intracranial pressure, I hope to take those fundamentals and apply them to the management of our child with a critically raised ICP. So if we return to our case, PICU are now in attendance, the airway is maintained with the jaw thrust and the child is saturating well with a non-rebreather mask. A blood gas result has come back and shows a respiratory acidosis with a CO2 of 7.2 and a pH of 7.28. Otherwise, the gas is, isn't very remarkable. The sodium is at the lower end of normal. The glucose is normal. The child's hemodynamics are evolving and the child is becoming increasingly hypertensive with a blood pressure of 139 over 88 and the heart rate has fallen into the 60s. Otherwise, his GCS remains at six, his pupils remain reactive and he is not febrile. We have already instituted our initial management um, with the use of oxygen to avoid hypoxia. We haven't been required to treat shock and the blood glucose is normal, so we haven't been required to treat hypoglycemia. The child should be placed in a 30 degree head up position with the head in the midline. And if anything is obstructing venous outflow from the head, this should be removed. Um, in order to allow for any compensation with venous blood reduction in the head as much as possible. The next step is to administer osmotherapy. The two options here are hypertonic saline, otherwise known as 3%, some brands are 2.7% saline, or 20% mannitol. Both of these medications work by creating an osmotic gradient between the blood and the brain tissue pulling fluid out of the brain tissue and reducing the size of the, uh, the brain within the CNS, aiming to reduce the pressure that it exerts. In terms of which is preferable, there is very little um, evidence to truly guide one choice over the other. Um, I have included a forest plot from a meta-analysis comparing hypertonic saline with mannitol, which shows a trend towards improvement with um, 
hypertonic saline over mannitol, but it just fails to reach uh, statistical significance with the confidence intervals, including one. The take home point here is that osmotherapy needs to be administered, and in this scenario of an emergency, you administer what you have to hand. In our child's case, the airway needs to be protected because the GCS is lower than eight and the, the child is failing to control their CO2, which is increasing their intracranial pressure through increased cerebral blood flow. In addition to that, we want to scan this child's head as a matter of urgency. And in order to do that safely, airway protection should be undertaken. This will require intubation, the technique of which um, will require the most experienced intubator present to undertake as you do not want to allow the CO2 to rise excessively during the intubation um, by having delays at tube passage and you want the tube to pass um, the first time if possible. The technique should be through a modified RSI so the child should be ventilated during um, the intubation to avoid excessive rises in CO2 and to avoid against um, periods of hypoxia. Drug choice should aim at avoiding periods of hypotension during the intubation. Classically, ketamine has been said to raise your intracranial pressure and therefore should be avoided in cases such as these. However, more recent studies show that the effect on the, the intracranial pressure is minimal and the effect of other agents on dropping the blood pressure and the cerebral perfusion pressure could be catastrophic. Therefore, I would advocate for the use of ketamine with fentanyl as an induction agent and avoidance of classical agents such as thiopentone unless there is signs of active seizure and the child is very hemodynamically stable. You should prepare for a blood pressure drop in these scenarios so that you can act rapidly by having push dose pressors available and fluid boluses available. And you should also prepare um, for rises in the ICP with CO2 rises during the intubation by having further doses of osmotherapy present. Muscle relaxant choice, I would choose an RSI dose of rocuronium. Following intubation, the child should be ventilated to a normal CO2 of 4.5 to 5, which can be correlated with your end tidal CO2. A volume targeted method such as PRVC is probably preferable for tighter control of CO2, and you should avoid hypoxia, titrating your FiO2 to a PaO2 of greater than 12. If you are going to undertake suction, you should pre-oxygenate the child adequately beforehand. Sedate the child adequately with boluses of analgesia to avoid spikes in ICP and monitor your end tidal during hand ventilation to ensure you're neither over um, or under ventilating the child. From a circulation perspective, initially two points of IV access is plenty. You want to arrange for urgent neuroimaging of this child and delays in undertaking by undertaking an arterial line or a central venous line may delay this um, with child which may have a time critical pathology which needs intervention. Any hypotensive spell should be treated aggressively with fluid resuscitation and you should aim to maintain an adequate cerebral perfusion pressure. 
Different targets for cerebral perfusion pressures are ad advocated on this paediatric emergencies website for different age ranges. At this moment in time, we do not have an ICP monitor in situ and therefore we are not able to um, guide our cerebral perfusion pressure based on an ICP. In those settings, you can assume an ICP of 20 and target a mean arterial pressure based on the, based on the table on the paediatric emergencies website based on age ranges. In order to titrate your mean arterial pressure, this can be done with the use of a diluted strength of noradrenaline which can be run peripherally prior to a central line insertion. I would advocate that this infusion should be made up and attached um, even if not required because it will, the delays in preparing it if the blood pressure should fall can be reasonable in duration and you do not want the child to be subjected to excessive periods of hypotension. The child needs to go for urgent CNS imaging to rule out time-critical neurosurgical pathology which requires intervention. Otherwise, from a CNS perspective, the child should be sedated and muscle relaxed to lower their cerebral metabolic demand, which will help reduce their intracranial pressure. Common combinations are of an opiate, such as morphine and fentanyl, with a benzodiazepine, such as midazolam, and muscle relaxation with rocuronium. If there's any sign of seizures, these should be treated aggressively with the APLS protocol. And different centres have different approaches to the use of prophylactic anti-epileptic drugs. I would advocate you discuss with your local neurosurgical or PICU team with regards to the use of prophylactic anti-epileptic drugs. Phenytoin and Keppra are common choices if they are to be used. Blood sugar should be monitored and hypoglycemia should be treated and the child should be kept normothermic as pyrexia increases cerebral metabolic demand and will increase ICP. So active normothermia should be maintained. If the child develops signs of herniation, pupil dilatation, worsening hypertensive bradycardia, extensor posturing, then emergency management will involve hyperventilating the child by hand with 100% oxygen, delivering boluses of hypertonic saline or mannitol, and giving additional analgesia, sedation and muscle relaxation boluses. Additional aspects of this child's management to consider include should CNS infection be covered? Local guidelines will guide you to appropriate choices of antibacterial and antiviral therapy. Fluid restriction, as this child is at high risk of developing SIADH, so fluid restrict to 80% with an appropriate isotonic fluid. Keeping the child nil by mouth and chasing up the results of your initial uh, panel for the child with reduced levels of consciousness, including toxicology and metabolic screens. I've included the, the next um, pathway um, as a, an overview of ongoing management. So this pathway was taken from a publication last year in Paediatric Critical Care Medicine, which was looking specifically at the management of severe traumatic brain injury and gave an algorithmic approach to its management. This algorithm includes all of the tenets of management that we have spoke about so far. 
early CNS imaging, baseline care, positioning in the bed, midline positioning, maintaining gas tensions, and then how to manage herniation, raised ICP and reduced level of CPP. These aspects of management are the ongoing levels of care which are appropriate in traumatic brain injury but are applicable in other causes of raised ICP as well and form the basis of ongoing management usually within the ICU. This pathway terminates with other second line therapies um, which are outlined in this image um, but these are purely ICU level management and will not be involved in prior management before ICU and I've included them more for information. So ultimately what happened with our child? Our child was intubated and ventilated with a ketamine fentanyl rocuronium RSI, was ventilated to a normal level of CO2. They didn't drop their blood pressure but they didn't achieve our target CPP so we're started on to peripheral noradrenaline at a low dose. They were sedated with morphine midazolam infusions and transferred to CT where a large posterior fossa space occupying lesion was found which was causing hydrocephalus and impending cerebral herniation. Further doses of osmotherapy were delivered and the child was transferred to neurotheatre for urgent EVD insertion to relieve the hydrocephalus and tumour debulking. So in conclusion, I hope at the end of this case you are now able to recall the causes of a reduced level of consciousness in children, to understand the pathophysiology of raised ICP and to discuss an approach to the child with a critically raised ICP, bearing those pathophysiological principles in mind. I've also included some references for further reading. Thank you.